Today is July 11th, 2019. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederation. These lands are now on Treaty 7, signed in 1877 with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, Wesley, Chiniki, Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. Hoki, Mekochis, Chestokom, Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman, given to me in ceremony. Um, my English name is Michelle Robinson. I was born in Calgary as Michelle Elliott, another English name, which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am the daughter of Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act imposed status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clinchotine Indahe, in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are a critical way to creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the folks of uh, the land that we're on. Um, any mistakes, misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what my journey as I walk the red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today or want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free and open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And the non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area that you can call too. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support to the show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to give in but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments, court, or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And this month, um, I'm going to be collecting donations to give to uh, the Ghanai Youth Basketball Association because um, they had come to Calgary and there was our last podcast was devoted to talking to uh, Truman Soup about the what had happened to you know the Calgary Refs Association and all of those things but ultimately the show went on the kids obviously did an amazing job and um, they had to pay to bring out of town refs to come so that money will be going towards that because uh you know, obviously it, it sucks that uh, this racism happened, and I'm pretty sure if you're a kid who's Indigenous, you know, at the end of the day, you're not 100% welcome, and that sucks. So i seen some really good coverage after our podcast went out from different, um, you know, main um, news organizations, which was great, and we even had a uh, few people go out and, like, give ice cream and you know, try to contribute in good ways. So, I mean, there's always some good things that come out of this, but at the end of the day, until folks recognize the systemic racism that we have, this is going to continue. 
and there will be something new to talk about, and I want to be wrong. So please prove me wrong. Um, I want to acknowledge today is Stampede here in Calgary. This is kind of a big deal. Even for me, I'm like, should I do a podcast? I don't know. I got to go down to the grounds. I always want to be down there. Um, and But today is July 11th. Today's date is very significant for many, many reasons. Um, so for those who may not remember... Today's a really significant day if you're a Mohawk and in Mohawk territory. And this particular day is uh, really significant because um, Oka happened. And it's really important to acknowledge the gravity of Oka and what had happened. There's um, uh, great videos out there that kind of talk about Oka. But my husband, he sent me this really good article that uh, Jessica Deer, the CBC Indigenous reporter, did. And I'm pretty sure she's part Mohawk or full Mohawk. And um, and I'm pretty sure any Mohawks listening to me would be really quick to say she's all Mohawk 100% of the time. <laughs> so Jessica Deer, if you are Mohawk, obviously I recognize you're 100%. You're not like, you know, on St. Patrick's Day, a little bit of Irish. You're Mohawk every day, 365 days. So... Anyway, I want to acknowledge your article, um, and I'm going to put it out there. Developers offer to give land back to First Nation where Oka crisis happened. So I read this headline, and I'm like, what? What just happened? So I started reading it, and I at first I like got all teary, and I was really happy, but then the rest of the story kind of started coming out, and I was like, oh. So I'll just read it out to you, and giving you that preference now so that or that um a preamble now so that you don't start crying and all the happiness and then hear what I have to say after and go oh well that's not ah because that's what my reaction was <laughs> a Quebec developer is offering to give back to the Mohawk part of a forest area of the land which was at the heart of the Oka crisis so a guy named Gregory Gollin said he's committed to transferring about 60 acres of the forest known as the Pines in the spirit of reconciliation through a federal ecological gifts program. At a citizen, I don't have to wait for the government to do my contribution to reconciliation, he said. Oh, man, that hit me so hard, I got all choked up. He goes on to say, My concrete gesture is to initiate giving back this piece of the forest I own that they value a lot in their heart because it has been planted by their ancestors. Hit you in the feels right there, doesn't it? Ugh, I was like, these are great quotes. I can't wait to share this article with those quotes. But then I started to read more. Um, oh, here's some history. In 1990, the municipality of Oka, Quebec, planned to expand a golf course in the Pines, sparking a 78-day standoff known as the Oka Crisis between the people Um I don't know how to say these words, and I really apologize to uh, the Mohawk uh, for not being able to say your territory properly, uh, but the people of Ganestane and then Surette du Québec. Sorry, Québec. I don't speak French. And later, the Canadian military, which we think we all remember that iconic picture. The area is part of a 300-year-old land dispute over uh, the Senate basically the sovereignty of the Lake of Two Mountains. Um, at the heart of the Oka crisis, it wasn't about money, it was about land, says Gregory Gollin. I have significant pieces of the land adjacent, 
so I decided to make my contribution. It sounds so nice and sweet, doesn't it? Keep listening. How Ecological Gifts Work Environment and Climate Change Canada's Ecological Gifts Program offer a tax benefit to landowners who donate land or a partial interest in land to a qualified recipient via the Income Tax Act of Canada and the Quebec Taxation Acts. Uh, Scott Nurse, a policy analyst with the program, said it has never been used to return land to a First Nation. In order for the gift to be approved, the land has to be certified by the province as ecologically sensitive, the recipient has to be approved, and the land has to be appraised for fair market value. Recipients of the ecological gifts um, must maintain an ecological gift or conservation status or receive authorization from the Minister of Environment and Climate Change for changing the use of the property or disposing of the property, says Nurse. Thought that was pretty shitty and pretty colonial, hey? Anyway, Gullen has owned a section of the Pines for a number of years. In 2017, his housing project um, sparked protests by people in the uh, Mohawk Territory for its proximity to the Pines. So just going to read that again. In 2017, 2017, that's two years ago. So, you know, two years ago, he was talking about doing a housing project, which the people of that area got, you know, really upset about. So, you know, and you just heard me talk about all of the colonial ideas of getting approval and it's a tax receipt, basically all of this. So I'm like, mm, all, all good feelings are gone. Mohawk activist Elaine Gabriel has long wanted a moratorium on all development within the area under dispute until the land claim is solved. Moratorium, that's the word I was looking for. She said, more land has been developed in the area in recent years than what they opposed in, two thousand, er, in 1990. Uh, let's settle the land dispute that was promised during the negotiations in 1990 so people can get on with their lives and don't have to keep worrying, she said. It's the first stage. The ultimate goal is to live in peace. Canada accepted the claim in 2008 under the specific claims policy and negotiations have been ongoing with the Mohawk Council. So I know that's Harper's era. So they've been in negotiations, the Mohawk Council and the government since 2008, obviously before that, 1990, and this is where we're at still. Crown Relations and Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affair Canada, which is a good way to just say Indian Affairs, said significant progress has been made since the negotiations began, and it's currently reviewing a settlement offer. Settlements for specific claims are typically a cash amount and the opportunity to buy land from willing sellers. In addition to the ecological gift, Gollin is also offered to make about 150 hectares of his vacant land available for purchase by the federal government to transfer to the Mohawk. Uh-huh. <laughs> his commitments are were both signed in a declaration of mutual understanding and agreement with Grand Chief Serge Simon on behalf of the Mohawk Council in June. Gabriel is skeptical of the agreement, as little information on its contents has been given to the community by the Mohawk Council. So it's, what, July 11th, this was signed in June, and they haven't actually talked to the people yet. And she says, nobody's seen it. 
So the agreement, obtained by CBC News, was first reported by the Eastern Door newspaper in May. So in May, they knew that this was going down. While the agreement said that it is subject to final approval by the Mohawk people, consultation has yet to occur. So it's been going on since May, and the people don't know about it. Colin was giving me hope that maybe we could progress. But if it's just a good thing, why wouldn't the agreement then be made public to the community? Why weren't we consulted on it, says Gabriel. She isn't the only one questioning the agreement. Caitlin Richard, 25, participated in the protests against Gullen's housing development in 2017 and said seeing the clearing of the forest forested area was scary, knowing um, that this is where I live and that this is where I plan on living and that we're polluting it. She says Gullen's offer sounds too good to be true. I think we all agree just from everything already said <laughs> that it is. Um... Grand Chief Serge Simon told CBC News that the ecological gift suits the community's goals with the pines. Our goal has always been to protest the pine forest from any further development that undermines the peace of the region, he said. The band council will be seeking direction from the community on whether to accept, reject, or seek changes to Gollin's offer, he said. Neither has Oka's mayor, Pascal Kualavin who is calling a meeting for July 17th to discuss the agreements with Oka residents. So get this. This is Indigenous lands, Indigenous issues. This is being negotiated with all these levels of government already. And then the mayor of Oka is like, oh, well, the citizens of Oka need to talk about this too. According to a July 5th Facebook post, the municipality wishes to be consulted by the federal government before any land is transferred. This agreement to land transfer um, to transfer vacant land and the federalization of a municipal lot adjacent to the neighboring land are more than worrying for the sustainability of our municipality, he wrote. This is a file that needs to be taken into consideration today because important consequences could be felt in the years to come. Our municipal administration is wondering when we are going to be consulted by the federal government. This is part of the reason why I ran for city council. Oh, you know what? I'm probably going to read that over and over and over again and just giggle every time for like a week. (laughs) Anyway, okay, okay. So, Jeremy Tomlinson, 38, is hoping that the people of uh, the Mohawk Territory attend the meeting. He's concerned with the lack of information given to his community about the agreement and he also wants residents of Oka to understand the root of the issue. So, Ganaste is one of the oldest Mohawk communities. We've been there for so long, and our land has been taken from us. So that's kind of the point, guys. Anyway, we've been dispossessed of it over the years, and it continues after every level of government to be preaching about reconciliation. Tomlston, who was nine years old during the Oka crisis, said... He can't help but feel some some, some some similarities between then and what's happening now when it comes to the community's relationship with the nearby municipality. The village of Oka, going against the community of Kananandaste, uh, sorry, and openly trying to mobilize efforts against what we're doing with our land, it's not too far away from what happened in 1990. That's the end of the article. Great job, Jessica Deer. 
But holy Jesus, people of Oka. Like, for real. Are you, really? You guys are still going to fight them over this? Ugh, I can't even believe I had to read all of this. And please remember, and my husband, he wrote that when he sent me this, he said, you know, remember, Oka happened in 1990 and the last residential school closed in 1996. Like, it's still not reconciled from 1990, folks. Like, today, it's still not there. Ah! Anyway, my friends in Oka, I just want to say, I know I'm thinking, just know we're thinking about you. Jessica, dear, fabulous article, but I just can't even believe this. I can't believe we're still talking about 1990 Oka, and we're, we're still not there. Like, RCAP, all of this, like, God, people of Canada, wake up! I don't know, you know, you, you bitch and complain. I've been dealing with this online for how long? Where it's like, why can't you guys get over it? And it's like, why can't you guys read a little bit about your own history and quit fighting the people in your own backyard? Why is that so difficult? Ugh! Okay, thinking about you, obviously today's an important date on July 11th, 2019. Jesus, that means that next year, there that will be the um, 30th anniversary of that. Jesus, am I old? Oi! Okay, 30 years. <sighs> you may have to make a trip out there. I think that's probably going to be a big deal. But that's a hell of an um, article to say 29 years later, that's for sure. So I was really glad my husband sent that to me. So, I'm moving on. Today was actually a really heavy day for me. Um... I was really, I'm, I'm just going to read this to you. We had a, a, an event pop up. I've been somewhat following these um, riders. So I guess, geez, years ago when Derek Nipponak was Grand Chief, um, he did something called the Treaty Caravan. And the Treaty Caravan was this idea of having a sacred fire and taking those um, ashes and igniting them across the country to educate the youth and, and all of the Indigenous folks about, you know, the uh, treaties and the commitment to treaty. And uh, he and a whole bunch of folks who rode their motorbikes went all across the treaty lands. And um, we did ceremony. We, we went to Satina's uh, band council office and they opened up their, their council for everybody. And all the men were allowed to be in the middle doing the pipe ceremony. So it was a really uh, special day. I got to meet Derek Nipponak here about the treaties. Uh, but I also got to meet Joan Jack. And Joan Jack is an Indigenous lawyer that has been one of those folks fighting for our rights for decades. So I look up to her. And she started, she retired, and she started to go across um, North America to talk about the missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. And... You know, so I was somewhat following her her journey, and she started in Winnipeg, and she went all down in the States. And today was the day that she was going to come to Calgary. So this popped up in my Facebook feed, and it said, you know, please join us in a send-off ceremony for Charmaine Willier Larson and Joan Jack, two of the MMIW Medicine Wheel Riders. They are in the last part of their Medicine Wheel ride around North America to spread awareness and support for the murdered and missing Indigenous women and their family and friends. All are welcome to attend and pray for this cause. 
Riders are welcome to join all or part of their ride. Uh, these women have been riding since May 24th and will end their ride in Winnipeg on July 14th. So today's the 11th, so they're aiming three days from now. And I know that they were aiming to be in Medicine Hat this afternoon at the teepee there. And for those who don't know the history of that teepee in Medicine Hat, it was actually at the original Calgary Olympic uh, 1988 opening ceremony. And then they moved it over to Medicine Hat. So, yeah, I know I'm I'm such a moron geek when it comes to things. <laughs> anyway, um, so... So they came in in their bikes and it was oh, just breathtaking to, you know, talk with folks. So I, I was one of the first people there. Um, so I had my Awutan Sisters and Spirit Vigil shirt on so that they knew they were in the right spot. And I had my red hanky on, but um, one of the riders really liked it. So, of course, I gave it to her knowing that I can get one anytime. So. Um, and I knew what they were doing was so incredible. And I was like, oh, please. And of course. And, um, you know, the longer we were there and chit-chatting, the more people came. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at their bike and on the back of their bikes, they have these red ribbons. And on each of the ribbon is a name. And because they believe that if some of the ribbons like fly off, it's because they were their spirit is being released, and uh, she had a book with her. So this was Charmaine had a book, and in the book, she wrote down the names of people that she had put on there, so that they knew for sure. Because if somebody's name was there and the ribbon wasn't there, then they knew for sure that that spirit was released. So I thought that was really powerful. So more and more people came and gathered, and I thought it was really um, important that Tanya Crochu came. And uh, she's the auntie of Colton Crochu. And for those who do not know Colton Crochu's story, um, Colton Crochu is an indigenous neighbor of mine that went missing. And I was walking my dogs and I seen Colton Crochu's picture everywhere. So I went over to the house and uh, met Jimmy and and his, his auntie. And um, over the years now, have gotten to know them uh, quite well and you know, try to talk about Colton's case as often as I can because there's been no charges laid or anything like that. Um, it was around this time, actually, that he went missing. And at that time, the police and the media were kind of really running around the family. And they said things like, oh, just wait till after Stampede, then he'll show up. And so they initiated their own family search. And, um, you know, I just started my job with 12 Community Safety Initiative, and I thought, you know, this is totally up my alley, but I don't think my company thought the same. It didn't matter in the end. Um, I'll always stand by my neighbors and my people first. And um, at the end of the day, they, the media wouldn't release a picture or put it up, and the police um, weren't really putting in a formal investigation into his disappearance. This was at the exact same time uh, those two grandparents and their little grandson were missing and they were on the front of the sun every single day. And um, I'm not trying to take away from that case at all, but the point was is that there should have been at least four faces on the front of the uh, cover and they weren't there. 
So anyway, I just wanted to give you a background if you don't know the story of Colton Crowshoe. Um, obviously, Justin for Colton is something that uh, you might see now um, with Colton Bushi's story, um, which is its own, you know, trauma on Indigenous people. Because, you know, the thing about Colton Crowshoe's story that taught me was that if you're Indigenous and you go missing in my neighborhood, this is what happens to you. And, uh, you know, I really wish the media and the police would, you know, prove me wrong. But unfortunately, I'm going to say the names of all the people I said to Joan and to Charmaine. And I'll say them right now. These were our names that really um, impacted our community here. And um, I might even just talk about each one as we go through. Uh, today is also the date in 2007 that Jackie Crazy Bull was murdered. And for those who don't know her story, she is another Calgary uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women's story. Uh, she was showcased on the show called Taken. So if you go on to APTN's Taken, there is an, a whole episode devoted to uh, Jackie Crazy Bull's story as well. And today is the anniversary of Jackie Crazy Bull's murder. And so I'm thinking about Jackie's family and, um, you know, knowing that this is our our area this is our home it was stampede and she was stabbed on 17th avenue um she was a sweet sweet woman and she was coaxed to the car because she thought she was helping a tourist she thought that she was going to be giving them direction somewhere and instead they jumped out and killed her um this was uh one of multiple stabbings across the city from these same folks um but other people survived. She, Jackie just didn't. And um, it's been really hard on her family. And I think about her family today. Yvonne Crazy Bull, Gloria Blackplume, Cindy Gladue, Crystal Bruce, Dawn's Echo Baptiste, Janelle Squirrel, Terry Ann Dolphinese, Gladys Tolley, Tina Fontaine, Josie Crowshoe, Colton Crowshoe, Ira Crowshoe, Colton Bushy. Daryl Kevin Smith, Amber Tauco, Joey English, Allison English, Jenny Gray Eyes, Lindsay Marie Jackson, Irma Dene McCall, Trishina Simon, Pauline Elizabeth Brazo, Colleen Jacobs and Ty Jacobs. They were killed in 1998 in Sutina. Josephine Peltier, shot and killed in Pembroke of May 17, 2018, in front of her son. Diane Rose Via, found October 3rd, 1919, or sorry, October 3rd, uh, 2018. Family and police are still looking for any help in her case. Barbara Aespace, uh, sorry, Barbara Aespace. Uh, 24, January 18th, 2002, killed by Frederick Amba. Eleanor Teresa Laney Edwin, murdered 1982. Laney was found on the outskirts of Calgary on February 4th, 1982. Her case was filed under Eleanor Sear, but within 24 hours the police had contacted the family because of the Edwin name. The transport of her body to Regina was covered 
and they were buried and she was buried within the four days as the traditional protocol of their of her nation this event happened um right at right in on 16th avenue in the northeast right where taylor chipaway was killed and a lot of folks from calgary may remember that name because the uh, cabbie had uh ran her over and killed her um taya tyla chipaway was actually had a um a male family member at the cancer treatment center across the street where we were at and was visiting frequently because that was her family and um you know, was, was killed on, on 16th Avenue. Unfortunately, um, Robin Fiddler was just recently killed by the Calgary police here in my area. They call it Southview, but it's the greater forest lawn area right behind where I used to work. And then today is Cheyenne Tom's birthday. Um, Cheyenne Tom, uh, is an indigenous woman who was killed. Uh, well, she, we don't, we don't know her full story. Um, I can tell you, working with her family, that she was apprehended and part of the system, and she had just aged out, had, uh, you know, addiction issues, and according to her so-called friends, was partying and um, died and overdosed in the alley behind where they were partying, but... I don't know. A lot to say about that. I know it's really hard on our whole family. Today is her birthday. So today, July 11th, is the anniversary of Oka. It's the anniversary of Jackie Crazy Bull's murder. And it's Cheyenne Tom's birthday. And that's why I have a lot of respect for what uh, Joan Jack and Charmaine Willier Larson are doing with this um, medicine wheel riding. Because I think that uh, it's a story for, it's a time for our community to come together. By the time we left, there was, there had to be 20 of us. And, you know, we were, we were sharing, we were sharing our stories of violence against women. Um, One woman confided an incredible story to me that I don't have the rights to say on my podcast, but it really hit me hard at what was done to her by the police. And I, wish that Canada would just read the goddamn report. Just read the fucking report. Because if you read the report, it's said over and over again, these issues, whether it's through child welfare, whether it's through policing, injustice, media, same thing with the calls to action when it comes to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's a whole section on child welfare. So I had no problem adding some of those names onto a red ribbon and giving it to them. And I called up uh, Cheyenne's mom and, and told her and sent her the picture and made sure that she knew I was thinking about her because, you know, you give birth to a, a woman. I The idea of me giving birth to my daughter and her being taken and her birthday coming up and not having her to say hello to is really hard. And I just want all the families of missing and murdered to know we think of you all the time. I pray for you all the time. There was a wonderful woman who had come and brought her drum, and she sang songs, and we all sang this strong woman song together. Um, I was told, I, w- I was originally taught it uh, by a Cree woman here in Calgary, and uh, she does amazing work in the area, you know, in the schools, um, 
teaching on uh, indigenous their culture teaching me songs and um i obviously experienced lateral violence like every other indigenous person and had folks be like well what kind of rights do you have to sing these songs and um and so i started to understand the gravity of what that meant when i was down in uh vancouver at the downtown east side um Aboriginal Friendship Center, they were having um, a gathering for missing and murdered Indigenous women's families. And they sang that song and they, they told me, everyone can learn this song. Everyone can sing this song. This song is healing. So they were giving the rights to me and to everybody in that gymnasium. And they were also encouraging other people that know that song to sing that song because it helps heal. So I was sure to say that so that the new drummer would know it's okay to learn the song and to sing the song because the song matters and it, it helps everyone heal from that pain. So, so that was kind of the heavy start of the morning and, but in a good way, it, it's, you know, um, it was interesting talking to the folks there, uh, Charmaine, Willier Larson said, you know, this has been a healing journey for her and she didn't even know she had to heal. And, and the reason why a lot of people may not understand that is because, you know, for a lot of us, we never have the opportunity to talk about the violence that we had experienced. And this is the one space that we have that space to talk about it and to, you know, talk about our truth and, and our lived experience with violence against us, against us. And, um, so what she said that is she found it really healing for her and, and in ways that she didn't even know she had to heal. And uh, I thought, and, and that's the gravity of these types of initiatives, um, is that it brings community together and, you know, hearing Tanya talk about her daughter and the story about that. And, you know, that's her story to tell. And hopefully one day I'll have her on my show so that you can hear it too. But I was really, um, you know, I've been really honored to hear about her daughter and to hear that journey and so many other folks who, who shared things that, you know, is horrendous. And that's that pride I, f I feel when I talk about my people and I talk about the things that they've lived through and gone through, uh, the things that my family has lived through and gone through. I shouldn't be here. And the fact that I am here talking on this podcast shows the resiliency of my people. And that's why I'm so honored and proud to be a part of this. And that's why it's my life miss mission to talk about 94 calls to action or 231 calls to justice for the rest of my life. I'll be talking about that. I'll be talking about Canada allowing the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, RCAP, allowing that to expire. I'll get to talk about that always for the rest of my life. And Canada, prove me wrong. Start implementing all these calls to action and calls to justice. Prove me wrong. I'd love it. I'd love to just be like every other Canadian and not worry and not talk about these things. Heal from them. Anyway, that's what next week is for. So next week I'm really um, excited to be taking part of a course to become a facilitator for Mending Broken Hearts. And uh, we'll see how that evolves, and I'll, I'll tell you about it once I get there. But anyway, um, so we had a few things happen that we just had quick um, podcasts go up. And, you know, I love talking. I always love talking to Miranda, Jimmy. I need to have her on and just us go through the municipal elections together. Because while she ran in Edmonton, I ran in Calgary. 
Um, and but then also we had um, you know an emergency podcast to talk about the racism the gun I youth basketball teams were facing. So since then, um, I wanted to tell you a little bit of that shocked me and surprised me. Um, so the Calgary Police Service has an Indigenous Justice Committee, which I'm I'm proud to be a part of. And you know I don't hold back. I talk about the issues all the time. And um, the Indigenous liaison, you know, he was like, hey, it's time to set up the teepee and we want all these folks to come. So I was really honored to be a part of that. Um, the Indigenous liaison is Alan Chamberlain. And um, the person that was before that was Cindy Provost. And she kind of has more of a, well, she's still working in the diversity team. Anyway, anyway, she had so many teachings to teach when it came to putting up that teepee in the Blackfoot way. And then right beside us, the RCMP were putting up their teepee. And uh, they did not put it up the Blackfoot way. So they eventually had to uh, take it back down, actually, and, and redo it. Um, so for those who do not know, so uh, the Calgary Stampede has had what's called been called the Indian Village for since the start of Stampede. But this year, they renamed it to the Elbow River Camp. So when we start saying Elbow River Camp, that's what we're talking about, you know, formerly known as the Indian Village. So Elbow River Camp has had, you know, specific family members since the start of Stampede come and set up their teepee, their family teepee. And they talk about their culture, talk about uh, teachings and, and, you know, they don't talk about um, the things I talk about. Like they literally talk about their teepees. They literally talk about um, the tradition of the land. They literally are talking about ways of life. Like it's invaluable. I, I can't promote Elbow River camp enough for anybody. That's the whole purpose of Stampede is for us to be talking about our culture and, um, uh, guy Wittick, the guy who started the stampede, he actually, um, <laughs> you have to understand, like hating East is kind of like ingrained in our soul out here, out West. And one of those things is, and this is an example of that historical idea of it was that, you know, um, during the time that they started the stampede, they had the Indian past system. So what that meant was, is that you know, we were all corralled onto these stupid little reserves and away from our, our main territories uh, just so settlers could come in. So in order to enforce that, the RCMP, that time Northwest Mounted Police and RCMP, they um, you had what was called the Indian Pass System. So if you were Indian and you were caught off res and you didn't have a pass on you, um, you were going to jail for sure, if not being shot on spot. So... Anyway, that was, that's our history. And there's actually a documentary called The Past System. If you Google it, you can see it. You can watch it if you don't know what I'm talking about. So anyway, um, at that time, because we were under the past system, um, Indian Affairs was like, you know, three Indians can't be together. Otherwise, you know, you're breaking the law and all going to jail. So Guy Wittick was like, well, that's not going to work because we want all of the natives here and we want them all sharing their culture and we want them, you know, in their regalia, which was outlawed at the time. And so Indian Affairs was like, nope. And so he went to Ottawa and, you know, was because he's obviously, you. we all know how the system works. Rich white people always get their way. So that's what happened. Rich white guy got his way um, with the politicians and 
he was able to get all of the natives to be able to come here and set up their teepees, share their traditions, dance and powwow. And that's that's the history of now what's called the uh, Elbow River Camp. Um, anyway, anyway, anyway. So, you know, every family comes, sets up their camp or sets up their teepee. And um, the Calgary police are have a teepee. Uh, this teepee has gone through all the ceremony. Um, because Cindy Provo, she does that work. Like, I, I can't tell you all enough how amazing Cindy Provo is. Uh, she's from Bagani, so she has her teachings. Um, anyway, lucky for the Calgary police because she basically has, has helped them. So, um, I'm just going to read you this one thing that they put out there for everyone to read. And it's called, uh, or here, just it's titled the Calgary Police Service Teepee. This teepee was made by the Plains Indian Survival School for the Calgary Police Service. Those who do not know what this Plains Indian Survival School was, was um, that was a school that was for like a lot of natives that were urbanized. Anyway, it is approximately 6.7 meters or 22 feet in height and 6.4 meters in diameter at the base. The teepee is set up in the Blackfoot teepee style with the four central poles. Uh, I'll talk about that a little more, but I'll finish reading this first. When it came to the paint, to paint the teepee, consultations between the Calgary Police Service and the elders were held. At first, an attempt was made to use a traditional Indigenous police design. However, at a consultation ceremony, the elders felt that the teepee should be directly reflecting the Calgary Police Service. Police volunteers painted the teepee using 36 liters of paint. The design symbols the following. The blue represents the Calgary Police Service. Oh, the traditional policing colors and shirt worn by the Calgary Police Service. The vertical red stripe represents the red stripe on the trousers of the Calgary Police Service, not the RCMP. Uh, the single horizontal red stripe represents the police hat band and signifies the teepee has a single owner. The Malise cross is a good luck symbol and the stars signify the passage of the sun. The day before the Calgary or the, the stampede opened in 1985, Jim Many Bears and Joe Kuroshu formed a song ceremony which officially confirmed the teepee's design as the property of the Calgary Police Service. So why this is all significant is that you know, there's a lot of protocol when it comes to teepees. There's a lot of protocols to teepees on Blackfoot territory. And for them to not do this in the right way would be really disrespectful to the Blackfoot. So that's why this is so important. And um, I think that, uh, like, this is doesn't do it any justice at all, talking about it just like that, because on the inside of the skirt, it has um, many of the pictographs of, and what they mean. And I, I just put up a picture, and you might have seen it, of the teepee that everybody sees at the start of this Calgary Stampede entrance. And I put the sign beside it, and the sign shows the pictographs for whether you're Stoney, whether you're Ghanai, whether you're um, Bagani. And it shows all the Treaty 7 signatories. So, you know, that really matters that we get the pip pictographs right. And Cindy went through it with me and showed me like this is a police helicopter, new pit pictograph, like everyone's going to know that one. But 
you know, she talked about how originally in our pictographs, it, the police were always done in red to signify the uh, Northwest Mounted Police or the RCMP now to showcase that. And um, But when it came to the Calgary Police Service, there was a change and they made it blue because the Calgary Police Service, that's always been their color. So um, another thing that was new to me that was super excited about was seeing the diversity team. Um, so you have to understand, like a lot of people make fun of Calgary Stampede and Calgarians when, when the Stampede happens because it's almost like cosplay where it's like we're never cowboys and but the one time a year we are is for the Stampede. And that and that is kind of true, but not always because we do have the rodeo. So there really are legitimate like cowboys there. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So everybody dresses up like um, cowboys. And in my case, you know, I get to be me. And, you know, that's kind of new for me because I was also one of those people that would just dress up in my Western jeans and, and such. Um, anyway, anyway. So they have these new denim shirts that say, you know, elbow, elbow camp, elbow river camp on it and um, Calgary Police Service. And I'm like, oh, I love that. And they have blacked Stetsons with the Calgary Police Service logo, which looks really good for Stampede. But the irony is, because internet, this is an international um, exhibition, <laughs> everybody from around the world wants a picture with the stupid Mounties. So they come to this teepee village, and of all of the places they get a picture of, it has to be RCMP. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But, it, you know the Calgary police really have done all the proper protocols when it comes to um, how to put up the teepee. Now, I wish we could transfer all of that knowledge into other parts. I mean, I literally just was talking about the MMIW ride and them just shooting and killing Robin Fiddler. So, you know, for me, it's like, it's so hard because I want to talk about reconciliation. I want to talk about these issues. But I mean, I remember doing diversity training with a District 4 um, cop and he just so clearly was just like natives just need to pull up their bootstraps and hearing like this one guy who's like I'm white and I suffer and have no privilege blah 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 so it's really difficult for me because I want to help but there are some people that don't want to be helped they don't want to know they don't want they don't care so you know of course I can't I can't put my energy anymore towards that um but when it comes to the TV, you know, I'm telling you about the Calgary Police Service because I got to, you know, watch the four poles, how they're put up. I got to see how they measure it off like a box and then how they put the TV poles after that on. And then the last one having the tarp and how that goes on, um, you know, and then once once it's up, the anchor system and then, you know, moving and and pulling all of the other TV poles like tighter and tighter so that that way the teepee is tight. Um, you have to understand that this is so like, uh, it's such an honored tradition in at the Calgary Stampede with the Indian Village and now the Elbow River Camp that every single teepee is marked on, um, you know, how well it's been put up, all of these um, things that they, they scored them on. So like the Calgary police scored really high on their teepee setup because of the way 
like you have to have, you know, a third of the teepee pole out of the teepees and all of these like small nuances that you might not be thinking about when you're putting up a teepee. Um, you know, the poles that open and close the flaps at the top, like there's, there's so much protocol. It was so funny because the, um, stampede had brought in this like little, um, storage area for, for the Calgary police, but they put it just right where the, uh, poles that you open up the flaps, like right there. So it really messed them up. So they asked them if they could move it and you could just see the, the, the guy who was like, had the uh, forklift, he was like looking at us like, really, you want me to move it like 10 feet that way? But in the end, it really mattered. So I actually took a video of us struggling trying to um, thread one of the flap holes to showcase. And I, I gave it to the Calgary police so that they could show the stampede, um, how it, it may not seem like a big deal just moving that 10 feet, but it was a big deal. So anyway, anyway, I learned a lot from it and I was really grateful for that opportunity. So I just want to send all my love and thanks to Cindy um, and to Alan for for letting me be a part of that. Um, some of the folks that were there, like this one guy, just love him to pieces and he puts up teepees all the time. Him him and his friend in like 20 minutes, they can do it. Um, anyway, I was going to talk a little bit about the RCMP teepee. Um, so the Calgary Police Service teepee was done in the tradition of the Blackfoot, but the RCMP was done uh, through the tradition of the Stony. So the Stony actually do the three um, poles instead of the four poles. So originally when uh, theirs went up, they didn't know how to do it right because it was a Blackfoot guy actually putting it up. So um, it had to come down anyway. And I know even when they had put it up and redone it, I went in there. Uh, they needed uh, longer teepee poles as well. So I think it was a Calgary Stampede um, found some or they had to buy some more or whatever. And um, so they, they had to reset up their, their teepee. And then it wasn't even properly anchored when I stuck my head in there at one point in time. So, you know, it the, the irony of the RCMP, and I know this is their second one that was, their first one was stolen. And... Uh, Oh, sorry, baby. Sorry, I just kicked my dog. Poor little girl. Um, anyway, the first RCMP teepee was stolen, and there's a reason for it. Um, we're in Blackfoot territory, and I, I know all of you listeners listen to me acknowledge that. Um, there's protocol here, and the protocol is, is that if your teepee is left abandoned, then it's for anybody. And the RCMP never sleep in their teepee. So one of the societies was trying to teach them a lesson and they told them this teaching and they still leave their stupid teepee um, unattended. So the, RC the the Calgary Police Service, they have people sleep in that every single night, whereas the RCMP rely on the Calgary Stampede security to take care of it. So I don't know, ma'am, if it goes up somewhere else in another powwow and they don't have Calgary Stampede security... They better find somebody to sleep in that stupid teepee because otherwise they'll be losing another teepee. Anyway, anyway, I don't feel bad for you, RCMP. I'll feel bad for you maybe after you implement the calls to justice of the MMIW report and maybe after the 94 calls to action, then maybe I'd feel bad for you and your teepee if it gets stolen again. So that that's that. <sighs> I feel like I've like exercised the demon. So with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. RCMP, I'm looking at you. No more. 
honor their words. Oh, and you know what? I'm also going to say this about the RCMP. It just came out even more women in your stupid organization has been sexually harassed. So get it together. Like, seriously, it is 2019, RCMP. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their platforms and policies. If they don't recognize marginalized people in their budget with gender equity plus RCMP, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, conservatives, education, indigenous education, conservatives, uterus health choices, conservatives, gay straight alliances, conservatives, know that your vote to that party directly impacts negatively marginalized people. Demand that they implement the TRC calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the multiple reports on child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on MMIWG. (sighs) Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism and sexism in the educational justice, health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things and child welfare. Uh, Demand change from the election uh, platforms and politicians. If they do not understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties or local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, like the Calgary Referee Association, you know, Violence is just an everyday reality for Indigenous people. Every generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, without lateral violence. As many people just don't want to hear Indigenous opinions, but sure as hell want to hear tell theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, Oh, yeah, there's a new report that came out on that, which we all knew. Um, just going to put a plug out for indigenous, uh, Policing Indigenous. Great book. <sighs> Constant surveillance of our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Typical microaggressions. You know, people who are dealing with internalized uh, racism. People who are gatekeepers. People who survive off the status quo. And then there are a lot of people still in deep in their trauma that stop people from being able to do work and, you know, deplete a lot of the personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I needed this podcast as a boundary to be heard and to do some healing. I hope one day that my family will be proud of what I said on this podcast as I try to discuss these present day issues in a way that we understand. Anyway, I always encourage cultural safety. So if you are seeing somebody from, you know, Muslim faith, any of the religious faiths, indigenous people, people of color, those with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, if you see something negative, start doing some first aid for these marginalized um, moments. You know, do something. Having good intentions is not enough. You have to take action. I cannot stress action enough. Uh, speak out against racism. Ask questions with those with more understanding. Like Google any, like seriously, there is so much information now on, you know, racial battle fatigue, on uh, what to do if you see some microaggressions happening against people. 
Do some self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. We all have it. Jesus, the other day I realized as a left-handed person, my daughter is struggling more than as a right-handed person that I am. So don't, like, I know it sounds stupid, but we all have assumptions and biases. We were at the uh, grandstand show and my daughter was like Googling all of these girls. I'm straight. I don't think that way, right? So reflect on your own assumptions and biases. We all have them. I know I do. Um, Reflect on what you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt the stereotypes that you've learned. Unlearn. Commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understand colonialism and uh, the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. Say thank you to heretohelp.bc.ca for what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. You know, internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of racism that Indigenous and marginalized people face. And, uh, you know, that's the legacy of the Indian Act and Indian residential schools and other land-clearing policies. We still live under the Indian Act, so if anybody ever says, get over it, that happened in the past, they are ignorant. They actually don't know that the Indian Act is still a thing. Anyway, what is internalized racism... Uh, by Donna Bevins is a great thing to read if you are, you know, a person of color, if you are uh, LGBTQ2+, if you are an Indigenous person, you're listening to this and like, what is internalized racism? Please Google that, read it, because you might be the one perpetrating lateral violence and you don't even know it. Um, Do's and don'ts for bystander interventions. Please Google that stuff. I mean, don't call the cops. It's simple. Don't call the cops if you are from a community experiencing that harassment. We have multiple reports saying that the cops are part of the problem when it comes to Indigenous people. Robin Fiddler has just been killed. That like Until people understand the gravity of systemic racism, it's just not going to change. So please Google that. Um, if you're experiencing emotional distress or want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for a wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. Um, if you're non-Indigenous, just call up a distress center in your li- your area. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, for what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong, teaching me to be blunt. My stepmom for showing me a proud culture through her Austrian roots and stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. Through her, I am a second generation proud Calgarian. I say thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing this show, on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, and support down my journey of the Red Road, he has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to her, our child, who we are blessed from, we learn from every single day, we're honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a stronger, better person, and you bloody well humble me all the time. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Let's say thank you to... Alexandria, Ashley, Beatrice, Celine, Diana, Heather, Jocelyn, Joni, Judy, Kenna, Kimberly, Lee, May, Matt, sorry, Nancy, Nathan, Phyllis, Sharon, The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. And if you're one donation or had um, only did or have done many and you had to quit for any financial reasons, just know I appreciate your support and you listening and for your support in the past. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. 
for those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love for, to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments and your questions. We're also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, I want to say, I want to end this by, ah, I ran over a, a rabbit today. It was already dead, but you know, it just feels awful. So when I say this, I want to say, I side-eye all the Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond by saying, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you for listening. <laughs>